You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. Good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible, please turn to the book of Proverbs. Actually, today we begin, we kind of bridge over from um, the introduction, the preamble, we've been calling it, uh, the first uh, nine chapters of Proverbs into topicals. So it says Proverbs various. That should to tell you, I was, we can't even put them on there. There's so many. I want to talk about today. What, the kind of people that wisdom causes us or ca- calls us to be. And it's found in this word that's used over and over again in Proverbs. It's actually used 66 times in the book of Proverbs. And I will read a sample. Proverbs. Uh, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. For receiving instruction and prudent behavior, for doing what is right and just and fair. Blessings crown the head of the righteous, but violence overwhelms the mouth of the wicked. The name of the righteous is used in blessings, but the name of the wicked will rot. The wages of righteous is life, but the earnings of the wicked are sin and death. In the way of righteousness there is life, along that path is immortality. What the wicked dread will overtake them, what the righteous desire will be granted. When the storm has swept by, the wicked are gone, but the righteous stand firm forever. The desire of the righteous ends only in good, but the hope of the wicked only in wrath. Those who trust in their riches will fall, but the righteous will thrive like a green leaf. The righteous care for the needs of their animals. That was for you, animal lovers. (laughs) But the kindest acts of the wicked are cruel. The light of the righteous shines brightly, but the lamp of the wicked is snuffed out. The Lord detests the way of the wicked, but he loves those who pursue righteousness. Better a little with righteousness than much gain with injustice. When justice is done, it brings joy to the righteous, but terror to the evildoers. Whoever pursues righteousness and love finds life, prosperity, and honor. The righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. Righteousness exalts a nation but sin condemns any people. When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. When the wicked perish, there are shouts of joy. Through the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. By the mouth of the wicked, it is destroyed. There is a small sample. Let me pray. Lord, I ask that you would guide us through our time and our text this morning. I pray, um, God, for the church, this church. Those, of, uh, those that fill this room that are, uh, that are followers of you, that claim to be followers of Jesus, I pray, God, that you would purify your bride today. Um, your word says, God, that uh, you will present to yourself a spotless bride. So you're, you're, it's your job to purify us, Lord. And so I ask that you would do that today by your word. For those of us in this room that do not yet believe, I pray you would give us faith and ears to hear. 
Um, there might be something very, very important that you want to speak. And I believe, God, by your spirit that you do. And so grant us faith. Would you anoint me? Help me to communicate um, these great truths of yours. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my favorite local writers, Gary Camilla, who, write, who wrote the book Cool Gray City of Love, which I highly recommend. And every Saturday in the Chronicle, he has a column called Portals of the Past, which are fun telling vignettes of the city's history. Yesterday, there was a weird article about French prostitutes, but I don't, I don't know what that means. But anyways, it was, that was what yesterday was. Anyway, he wrote a very thoughtful piece recently this month in San Francisco Magazine called, and I love the title of this article, called San Francisco is Dead, Long Live San Francisco. And it's about how the San Francisco of the last two decades or so is going away. Everyone knows that it's going away. It kind of all, it does every two decades or so in San Francisco. But the question is, and what the, this article tackles is, is there a way forward with all this? He calls it the change, capital C, the change. With all this change that's going on, is there a way forward? And that's what this piece tries to get at. And he starts this article by sucking you into the story about how most how almost unjust this city has been towards him, a native, a longtime resident, and homeowner in San Francisco. And he ends his first section of the article by saying this, this is one messed up town. And you almost feel for him. You're like, yeah, everything's changing. You get angry. And then he turns the tables like a good writer does. And he starts to ask, what's really wrong with all this change? What's really wrong with it? And he says, isn't what we love about San Francisco is that it's always changing? Isn't it's that it's always reinventing itself and in the process reinventing America? Aren't we proud of this city that it's come out of a financial slump and it has in part helped our nation do the same thing? Isn't what we love about San Francisco is that it's always in change, it's always reinventing itself? And so he pushes back on the other side of it and you don't know where he really stands. But he also says, however, the problems that the city currently faces are real problems. How do we move forward with all the real problems? And he says this. He says, it would be so much easier to deal with the change, the change is what he calls it, in San Francisco, if it were a matter of right and wrong. If it were like the city's worst mistake, the destruction of the Western edition, and the attending evisceration of the city's African-American community in the name of urban renewal. If you didn't know, if you knew the city or knew the history of the city, the uh, Western Edition used to be a, uh, a real flourishing African-American community. Um, the Fillmore District was known as the Harlem of the West. There was all kinds of jazz and culture coming out of there. And then in the 50s and 60s, they, the city just obliterated it and put what you and I know as Gary uh, Street or Gary Boulevard right there and really just destroyed a whole um, culture in there. And so he's like, that was a mistake. That was wrong. That was evil. He says, but this is not the case of history repeating itself. Urban renewal was a conscious, speaking of the, in, the, in the Western edition, urban renewal then was a conscious, racist, top-down policy to remake entire neighborhoods. The change currently, on the other hand, is organic and inevitable, the result of forces beyond anyone's ability to control. Then he says this. The simple truth is that the unprecedented gentrification of San Francisco is being caused by the most banal of facts. People want to live here. They're not just techies who make up only 8% of the city's workforce, albeit a very highly paid 8%. 
There are people in all kinds of professions from all around the world, and they are drawn here for the usual reasons. San Francisco is a spectacularly beautiful city with a Mediterranean climate, American opportunities, a European vibe, a romantic history, and progressive politics. Oh, and it's the pulsating center of the economic engine that's driving today's world. What's not to like other than the housing prices? <laughs> it's not the least bit surprising that once again the world is rushing in to San Francisco. What Gary Camille is saying, what the author is getting at in this article is that all this protesting that's been going on in the Mission District and all over the city and all this fighting that's going on with, um, with eviction notices and, and housing prices, everything that's happening, you can't really say, once you read the article, and, I, and this is all homework, everyone has to read this article, that's homework this week, you can't really say there is your right and they're wrong. You can't really say that. He goes, it would be simple if you can say that's evil and that's good. It's hard to say that you need something more. What he's saying, without saying, he doesn't really say it, but what he's saying in this article is that we need wisdom. I actually think that this article itself is a piece of wisdom, and that's why I signed it to you for homework. We need wisdom on how to move forward in San Francisco. SF natives, we need wisdom. You need wisdom. Landlords need wisdom. And the new and the wealthy tech community needs wisdom. Our civic leaders need wisdom. There is, it, this is hard to navigate between right and wrong. Most of the decisions you face in life are not really a matter of moral absolutes like right and wrong. The decision that we face where the moral absolutes don't really apply, we face those decisions all the time and what we need is wisdom. We need wisdom to face those decisions. And what I appreciated and what I enjoyed about Gary's article is that he's pointing out something that Proverbs does a lot to point out for the people of God. What Gary was pointing out in his article and what Proverbs continues and tries to point out for us, the people of God, is this. And this is what I want you to hear when you're hearing all the Proverbs that I just read to you. This is what is being implied in that article but pressed upon us in Proverbs. The wisdom we need as individuals has civic and communal implications. The wisdom that is needed, the wisdom that is offered to us, the wisdom that we get, that we need as individuals has a communal and civic implication. See, we not only need wisdom to make personal decisions, but the wisdom we need has to do with how we live communally. If you have been learning with us through the series, you may have thought that wisdom has to do with personal decision making. And character, that's why I recommended that book. And it does. Wisdom has to do with personal character and personal decision making. But those are to have, and they must have, this is what Proverbs is saying, those, that personal character must have communal implications. The wisdom that Proverbs wants to develop in us has communal effects. It's this inside out working. We are called to be a kind of people. This is what we've been learning over the last several weeks. We are called to be a kind of people. We are called to be wise people. That's an inward work. We have a, a wise heart. We are good inside. God makes us good. We have this inward wisdom. But we are be, to be the kind of people that because of our inward wisdom, we are to affect our community, community outwardly. We are to change. There's about 1,500 people in this room. And 1,500 people spread out across this room that has the inward spirit of God in them, given wisdom from within, should affect the community. 
To have wise people of God in SF means that it will affect and help the problems that our city is currently facing. It must help this city. It will. I'm confident that it will. The wisdom that we get has this communal effect. The, the word that Proverbs uses to get across this inside-out phenomena is righteousness. Righteousness. What we need, we saw it in Proverbs 1.3, we need righteousness. Righteousness, okay, so the, the, the very popular couplet that we see often in the Bible is righteousness and justice. Hendiatus is, do you guys know this term, uh, hendiatus? I didn't either, so don't act like you do. But anyway, um, this couplet here, okay, so, so righteousness and justice is a couplet. The Bible always pairs these two together, always, okay? Not, well, most of the time. It's coupled together throughout the scriptures. It's called a hendiatus. It's a rhetorical device. Basically, it means this. Two words have separate meanings, but when they come together, they have an actual, they, have, they express a single idea. Sometimes they take on a fuller meaning. Uh, let me give you an example. Law and order. That's a, a hendiatus. It's, law has a, has a specific meaning and order does, but when they come together, they have the, a single idea. Health and safety. Room and board. Crate and barrel. Not crate and barrel, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> Furniture joke, sorry, I'm a furniture um, Actually, funny story about that. Um, so when I first saw that store, uh, have you guys ever seen this store? Anyways, I'm from Bakersfield. I'm a simple folk. You know, I just come from a simple place, Bakersfield, California. And uh, back in like 1999, when I first saw this store in New York City, I, it was a pretty fancy store to me. So I walked in and I just fell in love with them. I called my wife. I'm like, I, ran into, I went to the best store I've ever been into. And I thought it was a fancy store. So I'm like, she goes, what's it called? I'm like, it's called Karate and Barale. <laughs> She's like, really? I'm like, yeah, just so, so great. <laughs> and so like three months later, we're in LA and we run into the store. I'm like, there it is. There's Karate and Barale. She's like, I think you mean Crate and Barrel. I'm like, yeah, on the East Coast, they say it differently. <laughs> anyway. That's the only thing you remember for this sermon. I will, you'll never be invited back at this church. So just forget I said that. <laughs> so, hendiatus, okay? Together, law and order, health and safety, room and board, right? So, righteousness and justice. Righteousness has a, a single meaning, right? Justice has a single meaning in Scripture. But when they're put together, they mean they have a single meaning together. The Hebrew word is shedek mishpat. Shedek mishpat. And so it's up there. This is the Hebrew word. So these words are coupled together all the time. They're the two biggest words in the Old Testament. They are used 66, or righteousness, um, uh, Shadak, is used 66 times in Proverbs. I read you a sampling of them this morning. These words are very important to the people of God. The roots of these words go back to the very roots of Israel. And so, if you're Jewish in here, these words go back into your very roots. Those of us that have been grafted into the promise, these words go to the very roots of our faith. The Abrahamic promise in Genesis was that God took Abraham, though Abraham did not have any children and didn't have any land, God said, I'm going to promise you a whole family and I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to do it by grace. Now, I want you to be righteous and upright and I want you to follow me. And then, in Genesis 18... We have this really strange story where these three strange visitors visit 
Abraham and Sarah and say, Abraham, you're going to have a child and you're going to have a nation. And Sarah hears and overhears and laughs and goes, I'm old. My man's old. We're old. There's no way we're going to have kids. And then God, right after that happens, he says to himself, so it's almost like this Trinitarian overtone in verse 18 in chapter 18 of Genesis, it says this, listen, it's very important. This is the first time these, this couplet is mentioned. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. At this point, Abraham doesn't have land. Abraham doesn't even have a family. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. And all nations on earth will be blessed through him. Through his family, every nation, every city, every people group will be blessed. For I have chosen him. I have chosen him. And the implications there, I've been chosen him by grace. I've called him out. I've chosen him so that... This is very important. There's a so that to the choosing. I've chosen you, Abraham, so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. That the way of the Lord has been something that's been coming up over and over again in Proverbs. The way. Wisdom is a way. Wisdom is a path. And Abraham was called out to have a family and his, to teach his family the way of the Lord. By doing, how do you keep the way of the Lord? Here it is. By doing what is it? Shadek Mishpat. By doing righteousness and justice, by doing what is right and just. You are the people of God, Abraham. I'm calling you out. You're going to be my people. I'm going to give you a nation. You're going to have a nation and you're going to teach this nation the way this nation is going to bless the world. You're going to do what's right and what's just. What's right and what's just. Shadek Mishpat so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Here, by God's grace, he chooses Abraham, and he makes a remarkable affirmation that the creation of a community of righteousness and justice was the immediate purpose of the election of Abraham. This is so important. Listen. The reason why God chose Abraham and he started this community was to be a community of righteousness and justice. That was the immediate purpose for the election of Abraham. God said, I saved you from something and I brought you into something. I saved you to be righteous and now I want you to act righteously. I want you to act justly. Now, some clarification. There are immediately people here this morning and when, I, when, I, when they hear me say, you are to be righteous, you immediately think that's a bad word. You might in your mind think of self-righteousness. You might be afraid of doing righteousness. You're like, I don't want to be perceived as holier than thou. I don't want to be perceived as that Christian that's always doing the right thing. I, I want to actually blend into the city, thank you very much. I don't want to be perceived that way. Or you might be in here and think, hey, Dave, I've sat into a, through a couple of your sermons. I know what you're doing right now. You're going to like do this whole trip about righteousness and make me feel really, really bad. And then at the end, you're going to go, you cannot be righteous on your own. You need Jesus. And I'm like, yes. And then the light's going to go out and everyone's going to get on the carpets. That's, that's, I know you're, you're leading me there. I know that's what's going to happen. It's like you're going to talk about all this righteousness and at the end of the sermon, you're like, you can't do it. You can't be righteous. And you want me to quote something from Paul when he's like, there's no one righteous. No, not one. Everyone needs Jesus. Come forward. And the carpets are full. I'm like, oh my gosh, that was the greatest thing. You basically spent half hour telling me how stupid I was and said, I, I, can, I can have Jesus and be smart. <laughs> now, listen. <laughs> that is, that is true. 
as it pertains to your salvation, okay? That is true as it pertains to your salvation. But righteousness is actually a multifaceted, multidimensional word. So if I tell you that you are called to be righteous, do not wait to the end of the sermon and go, oh, he's gonna tell me I'm not righteous and then I need to go for prayer. Stop, just wait. You are righteous if you've placed your trust in Christ and you are considered the people of God, you are given a righteousness that's not your own, okay? It's Jesus, he earned it. And that is as it pertains to salvation. But righteousness, biblically, is multidimensional. Let me, let me just show you a couple of dimensions of righteousness because you need to understand this. This is the learning portion of the sermon, so take notes, listen, learn. Here it is. The first sense is forgiveness and acceptance. That's what we're talking about a second ago. It means this. You are, you are, are a, 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 a full child of God. I am fully a child of God. This has to do with identity. There is no amount of good works that you can do to earn favor with God. You can do all the good works, and the Bible says they're like filthy rags before God. You need redemption. You need a new heart. You need a new mind. You, God needs to place his spirit in you. You need to be uh, redeemed. That's, what the, that's the language of the Bible, the Bible uses, okay? So this is what we traditionally call the gospel, the good news. The good news is that you could do nothing to earn your way to God. God comes down, takes our life, our, our flesh on, takes our sin on, and then gives us his righteousness. We become righteous in Christ. In Christ, okay? That's a one dimension of righteousness. But the dimension of righteousness that that Proverbs is talking about is a different dimension. The, the dimension of righteousness that it talks about in Genesis 18, the second part, is a different righteousness. This is, in the second sense, it's moral character. There is a righteousness that has to do with moral character. Now, it would be really, really, really bad for you to not grow in moral character as a follower of Jesus. Very, 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 very bad. This means I'm growing in God-like character. This is the dimension of righteousness that Proverbs is pushing us toward and demanding from us. We are actually called to be, once we've been made righteous, we're called to be righteous. And this is not just an Old Testament concept. This is very New Testament. Once we understand who we are in Christ, once we know that we are the people of God, that God has saved us, and then from that point we're actually called to be righteous. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1. Let me just read this to you. It's on the screen. Listen. Just see if you can actually pick out the dimensions of righteousness. You ready? It's an exercise together. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Do you see the overtones of Genesis 18 there? Called us by his own glory and his own goodness. This is the first dimension of righteousness. This is identity. This is calling. This is grace. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. Now, you are actually in Christ. You are a part of the divine nature of God. Having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desire. So you've escaped that. You've been, quote, saved from that. That's where we get that language, you've been saved. For this reason, now this is the second dimension. For this reason, make Every effort. Some of you need to open your Bible and just highlight that. 
Now I have this identity. Now I have this first dimension of righteousness. I'm made right before God. But now the Bible, Peter, who walked with Jesus, calls us. Now, now make every effort. This is the second dimension of righteousness. Make every effort to add to your faith, to add to that belief in Jesus that he's done it all, Jesus paid it all. Add to that faith goodness, meaning you be good, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, meaning that there is a process of you growing in moral character. If you possess these in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive. Isn't, aren't those two words, ineffective, unproductive, like the cuss words of San Francisco? <laughs> like, you're just being so ineffective. What? I'm changing the world. What are you talking about? No, you're not changing the world. You're not, you're not doing anything. And so we're so afraid of that as overachievers. Ineffective and unproductive. Another word, a way of saying this, we said this like three weeks ago, is misliving. What if you get to the end of your life and realize that you actually mis, mislived? You actually didn't live the way that the whole purpose of life. You actually didn't take it all into account and go, I actually missed my one shot at living. What Peter is saying here is that if you do this, if you grow in your your, your, this other dimension of righteousness, moral character, it keeps you from being ineffective and productive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them, meaning the character, is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Meaning, this is what Peter's saying, if you are not growing in the second dimension of righteousness, you have forgotten the first dimension of righteousness. If you are not growing in the moral character of righteousness, it's because you've lost sight of what Christ has done for you. You've lost sight that Christ has made you righteous and not just made you righteous, but called you to be righteous. So to summarize this, for the people of God, Old Testament and New Testament, we are brought into the family of God by grace. We have a righteousness that's given to us, not based on our own moral record, but on God's. That's the first sense of the word righteousness. But now, as the people of God, we are to be people of righteousness. And that righteousness is not a bad word. I'm not talking about self-righteousness. This righteousness now is what God expects from us. At the very least... We are growing in it or making every effort to grow in it. Now, let me clearly define what righteousness and justice mean. Because I've been saying be righteous and just, but what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, I'm going to use a quote by a commentator named Bruce Walkie. And uh, he wrote a, uh, a, a giant commentary on the book of Proverbs. And he gives a really clear and helpful definition of righteousness. But hang on, this might sting a bit. Okay? So, righteousness, he says is a pattern of life, not merely specific acts. What is at stake is personhood, not merely performance, disposition rather than mere deeds, character behind and beyond conduct. This kind of life and behavior has a religious dimension as well as an ethical one, since the righteous depend on Yahweh. Righteousness refers to the moral quality that establishes right order. This is great. Righteousness refers to the moral quality that establishes right order. So 
Righteousness establishes a right way of living, lives into a right way of living, and pushes that down into the community level. But then he says this, and justice refers to the moral quality that restores that order when it's disturbed. So righteousness puts things in order, and justice goes after things that are out of order to make them right again, to bring about shalom. And then he says this, this is the stinging part, listen. The righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves Uh, disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. That preaches. I don't have to do anything after that. Just like drop the mic or slap the mic off my face or something, you know? (laughs) The righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. I will be a righteous, keep that up for a second, I will be a righteous person, I will disadvantage myself to advantage my city, to advance my city, to bring righteousness into my city, or justice, meaning something's out of order and I need to intervene to bring it back into order. One of my closest friends, Christian, who's the director at City Impact, intervene is his word. It's like that's his main, and that's what justice is. It's like I'm intervening on behalf of the TL, it's out of order, no civic sort of person can actually try to bring it in order. We need God to intervene, and he's using us as, as means of that intervention. And so where we see disorder, we're intervening and trying to make it right again. That's what justice does. What does righteousness do? It actually brings in order. It brings in order in your work, in your workplace, in your neighborhood. And then justice, like, this is out of order. It's out of shalom. We need to bring shalom into this. Tim Keller adds to this when he says this in his book, Generous Justice. He says, Biblical righteousness is inevitably social because it's about relationships. When most modern people see the word righteousness in the Bible, they tend to think of it in terms of private morality, such as sexual chastity or diligence in prayer and Bible study. But in the Bible, uh, Shadak refers to day-to-day living in which a person conducts all relationships in family and society with fairness generosity, and equity. We are called to be the righteous people of God. That means that God has made us righteous. We are to actually be people of character, and our character is to affect our city. That's what that means. That's scary. But by the Spirit of God, we can do this. Look at these last sections in Proverbs from our text. We read this. Let me read the last four we put together. Whoever pursues righteousness and love finds life, prosperity, and honor. Now, some people have a, a really difficult time with Proverbs because they think it's, um, well, it's just saying that if I do a certain thing, then I get all this really, really good life. I get, this real, I get this great and awesome good life. Part of Proverbs is that you live in a society in such a way that when you're actually bringing in righteousness, when you're actually bringing in the peace of God and you're reordering when things are wrong, that you will actually find life. You will actually find a, a reason to be, you will actually find like, um, I, you will feel more alive then than you ever will. You will actually have prosperity. Well, what does that mean? Flourishing. Like people will rise up and call you blessed. People will like, thank you for doing this in our city. That's what will happen. It will. In honor, you will have a name. People will know, people, you will have a name in this city. As people, as a people who give, who pour into it, 
The righteous care about justice for the poor. You care about it. You don't just know about it. You care. You do something about it. But the wicked have no such concern. They just don't care. The righteous, righteousness exalts a nation. So our being righteousness, our being righteous together exalts, but sin condemns anyone. And then, the, gosh, it's such, such, such a beautiful passage. When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. When the wicked perish, there are shouts of joy. Now, the city rejoices for both. You you notice that? There's celebration on both ends. When the righteous prosper, the city goes, yeah. And when the wicked fall down, the city goes, yeah. Because the city knows, as it pertains to to them, what, what righteousness does to a city. Righteousness is actually never defined in Proverbs. If you're looking for a definition, it'd be hard to find one. What does righteousness look like? And the reason why it's not defined, now I'm going to read some, some stuff, but, and it might feel like school in here, but please stick with me. This is very, very important to learn, okay? This is very more, much more of a teaching sermon than anything. Right, the reason why righteousness is not defined in Proverbs is because if you actually read the texts that have to do with righteousness, it's always how the community responds to the person who's right, Okay, so let me, let me read an example by a, um, a very great theologian named Gerhard von Rad, or Rad, or whatever. Let me read, I'm just going to read you a section of what he says, okay? It's very, 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 very good. He says, Israel encountered the good in quite a different way. The good was experienced by her quite simply as a force, as something which determined life something experienced daily as effective. And that is as something present about which there need, be, uh, need to be as little discussion about, about it as light and darkness. Now, if you're having a hard time following, what does goodness and righteousness mean in a community? And what Gerhard von Rad is saying is like, you wouldn't have to explain it because it would be as simple as saying, it's light outside, it's day outside. Or it's night and it's dark. It's that simple. You just see it and you know it. Good is that which does good. You're like, oh my gosh, you needed to write a book about that? Like, good is that which does good. Evil is that which causes harm. Both good and evil create social conditions. In a completely outward sense, they can build up or destroy the community. Property, happiness, reputation, welfare of children, and much more besides. It is a question not only of movements and tendencies inside a man's heart, inside our heart, but a life-forming but of life-forming forces whose power was obvious to all. It was a question of reactions which could always be identified. Okay, stop there. What he's saying is that the reason why goodness or righteousness is not defined in Proverbs is because the community would know what good and evil was. The community would see you and go, you're actually doing good for our community. They would see you and go, you're actually doing evil for our community. It would be as identifiable as night and day. And this goodness had community-affecting, community-shaping effects. He goes even further than that. He says, the good man, the good person, the good man is one who knows about the constructive quality of good and the destructive quality of evil and who submits to this pattern which can be discerned in the world. He just submits to it like, I submit to the good. He is the righteous man, the diligent, the temperate, the one who is ready to help, the one for whom 
this goodness of his itself turns out to be good. The good is that which does good. Goodness was, therefore, always something public, never something merely internal. It was a social phenomenon. When it goes well with the righteous, a city rejoices, but the blessing of the upright, by the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. He's quoting Proverbs. The behavior and activity of the individual are always viewed both with regard to their consequences and with regard to their effect of society. So, all that quote to say this, all that to say this, and hopefully for some of you, intellectuals like, you totally got that, you understand it. Let me just explain it to some of you that might not still understand it. Us being good in San Francisco will be recognized as the, by the city, by our community, by our neighbors, by our employees or our employer as good. It's just doing good. I don't want it to make it more complicated than that. It's just doing good, doing right in the city's eyes, in, the, in our community's eyes. We have to live together and be interwoven into the fabric of our community. So if we do good, we're like, I'm going to do good as what good means to me. It does no good for them. And Proverbs is saying that the righteous person does goodness and righteousness so much so that when you prosper, the city goes, I'm so glad you're prospering because I know as you're prospering, we're going to prosper too. I know that as you're actually sowing into this community, the more you, you get and the more you prosper, the more we prosper because you give back. The, this is a really, a really extreme example, and I wasn't going to use it, but I, I feel like I have to right now. It's a really extreme example. The cover of that magazine that I read, I, I read that article is this. This is the cover of the magazine. It's, the front of it is, is uh, uh, Mark Benioff, and he is the CEO of Salesforce, and our city recognizes him as being the people's mogul. Our city was basically an interview saying, thank you. Thank you for being this example in our tech community of being wealthy but giving back. And so when the more you prosper, people aren't going, oh, no, well, a lot of people are not going, I hate when you prosper. Like, oh, if you keep prospering, hopefully you'll keep, keep building more hospitals. You know who used to do that, building hospitals? The church. Thank you for making more money because you're building more hospitals, you're giving back, you're, you're starting SF Gives and you're challenging, you're leveraging all of your, your wealth and all of your name so, and you're almost strong-arming because the article is almost saying that you're almost strong-arming other tech, tech companies. So you, you got to give. We have to raise $10 million to, to pour into our schools. We have to raise this right now. And so they're like applauding him. So this is the exam- extreme because you're not a billionaire. Maybe you might be in here. I don't know. If you are, listen. <laughs> Here's someone that the city, okay, if we're looking at the second dimension of righteousness, this, when the righteous, meaning when the, the people that do good for the city, when they prosper, the city goes that's good. I want that person to prosper. The wicked person, the person that uses the city and uses its people and gets wealthy and doesn't ever give back, when they get wealthy, everyone hates it. Everyone hates it. But if you keep giving back and you keep serving and you keep doing whatever you can do, the city goes, thank you. Do you, do you see how simple that is? Well, if you're a billionaire, it's simple. But you might not be a billionaire. But the principle is this. The principle is that the church, and this is a heavy calling. You can take that picture off. It's weird. Um, <laughs> if the church, I, I know we, we might not be billionaires or even millionaires. We might not be. But we have the spirit of God. 
We have a righteousness that's given to us by Christ. We have the indwelling spirit if you're the church. And we are called to be in San Francisco and to be and to do righteousness and justice. Now, I'm, I'm not at a point where I'm just, I can actually even say, if the church went away, would the city miss us? I don't even want to ask that question. I'm too scared of that question. But I want to get to a place that we, can, we might be able to ask that question. That we are a people that have spread out so much in the city that we're actually doing righteousness. That we actually have moral character. That our yes is yes and our no is no. That the people that are oppressed, we help when we see injustice, we try to make it right. We live righteously as righteous people because we are righteous people, but we live righteously. And then that righteousness affects our community. Now, so this is how I want to close this morning. Going a little long, but I, I, I want to close like this. I want to close with a warning and a, a, a correction and then a posture of humility. So warning, correction, humility. And it's all found in Isaiah chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, you could turn there. We're almost done. This is a very helpful and profound passage about what God desires out of his people. And so if you didn't feel the weight of this enough, this might add that little and push you over the edge a little bit. And I, I hope that happens because I want to disrupt us a little bit. I want to disrupt myself. I want to disrupt my, my, my own life a little bit and go, how am I living into this? And this is what it says. It's a song. And Isaiah writes a song, and it's called the Song of the Vineyard. And it's a song that's actually a critique. We don't really write those songs anymore. Um, maybe Royals was maybe the, kind of that song. But other than that, we don't really do that. But it's a critique on society. We don't really, those songs don't really come out that often. But Isaiah writes one. And I'm not going to sing it to you, but I'll read it to you. How about that? Want me to sing it? I'll sing it. Okay. No, I'm joking. I don't want to sing it. Um, uh, okay, so chapter 5. Okay. So it says this, I will sing, I will, I'm not, it's not on the screen, so just look at your Bible. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and he planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and he cut out, the, he cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked up for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than what I have done for it? When I look for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do with my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. Stop there. So, get the picture. We all live in San Francisco. Napa's really close. I see all your Instagrams on Saturday. Everyone's in Napa. So you guys get this vineyard analogy, right? God plants a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He worked it, and he uprooted all the briars and the thorns, and he planted a really ch some choice vines, choice fruit. He built a watchtower in the middle of the vineyard to protect it and watch over it 
from animals and thieves. He, so he protects his vineyard. He built a wine press to make good wine out of the good grapes he was hoping to expect from the good soil and the good vines. He was a fully involved vineyard manager. He was managing his vines. And then he goes at harvest time and he grabs from the, from the vines what he expects to be good fruit. But he finds bad fruit. He finds sour grapes and bitter grapes. And then he says this. And what did, and then it says in, in, verse, uh, in verse 7, this is what God considered, this is the problem. What's the problem? What did they do? And so God says it. And he says it through Isaiah. And Isaiah says this. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah, the vines he delighted in. He looked for justice. He looked for mishpat and saw bloodshed which is a play on words in Hebrew. I can't really say it, but it's a play on word. It's, it's a derivative of, of, of justice, injustice. And he looked for righteousness. There's that word again. But cries, but he heard cries of distress. God planted these people in the land. And he said, I give you everything that you can flourish, everything that you can grow, and I want you to do this. I want you, like the promise was to your father Abraham in Genesis chapter 18, I want you to do justice and I want you to do righteousness. I want you to do righteousness and I want you to do justice in the land. But they were not. They were bitter. And so God uproots them. It's clear that the point and the purpose of Israel's election and redemption was the, was the creation of a community of righteousness expressed in justice. The Lord comes to the community he created and expecting to find a society committed to righteousness and justice, which reflect God's own character, he finds a society filled with injustice. He finds a society that is living for themselves. Now, here's the warning. God has, for those of us in here that are are followers of Jesus, God has taken us and he's planted us in this fertile soil called um, the city of San Francisco or the Bay Area, and he's planted us, and he's saved us, and he's redeemed us, and he expects from his people that they would do righteousness and justice. He expects it from us. Like God, our Father, because, like, like a good dad and a good mom would do, and they would grow their kids up and pour into them all this stuff, they would expect them to do the right thing, to live into the things that, 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 they've, that they've poured into us. This is what God does with us, his children. He redeems us and saves us and gives us his spirit. And he expects us to say no to ungodliness. He expects us to do right, to live justly and righteously in our city. He expects this of us. Now, the beautiful thing is that he gives us his spirit to do this. We don't in our own, like, we don't muster it up. This is where I'm calling for correction. Anyone who desires to be righteous must have in their life built in correction. Meaning, if you're in here today and you're like, okay, I'm not living this way, then, re, then correct yourself. Start with repenting, with confessing. That's it. I mean, it's not this big hoopla. It's just like you come forward and go, I'm confessing. I'm not living this way. I see it now, and I want to live this way. I want to live this way. I want to live rightly. God, help me. 
by your spirit, thank you for telling me these things. Help me by your grace. That's what it, and then humility. It takes humility to realize I'm not doing this. I'm not living this way. I've, I've, I, I've accepted the grace of God like cheap grace. I thought it was just so it could clear my conscience and I could do whatever the heck I want to do and live however I want to live. But that's not what God has called us into. That is not a wise way to live. So church, this teaching comes as a bit of a warning. It's heavy, and I understand that. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, it's a warning to us that God has given you so much gifts and so much wealth and opportunity, and not just that, but his spirit. We are actually called to do the right thing. And then in Matthew 25, we see the people of God that are given talents, gifts, and they're called to give an account. And now those words we all long to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, happen to the people who take the things that God's given them and they invest them wisely and go, you gave me these talents and I grew them to this. Here you go, God. It's like, well done, my good and faithful servant. You were faithful with little, I'll make you faithful with much. That's the warning today. It hits hard. It hits, it hits at a, at, at a, really at a gut level, and I don't apologize for it. I want us to sit in it for a while. And I want us to go, let's be smart and distinguish between a righteousness that's given to us by Jesus, by grace, and a righteousness that we are told, called to grow in. Let me pray. God, I know that these, these things sit very heavy. And sometimes as a church, we need to hear that correction that calls us to live in a certain way. And when we don't do it, a correction needs to take place. You discipline those you love. Those that you call your children, you discipline. And so today we might just need that good discipline. This is a heavy thing, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you've given us, that you, we don't do any of this to earn your acceptance. We don't do any of this to be right before you. That's given to us. But as your children now, would you help us to grow in character? And God, may we repent where we've gone wrong, where we've wasted our lives, where we've mislived, where we've squandered our wealth, where we've squandered our responsibilities, we have, where we have not grown in personal character or done righteousness or justice. Would you forgive us, Lord? And would you correct us? And would you set us on a right and good path? Make us wise people, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.